Last time on The Feud. The whole thing was weird and creepy. He assaulted me while wearing a collar in a cathedral. The allegation was that I had said to this woman, I couldn't take my eyes off you during the service. Well, in actual fact, I was robed, I was sitting next to my wife, and I have, in fact, got pretty terrible eyesight. She says you actually stroked her hair for 10 seconds. Did you touch her hair? No. Some people hoped that this would be a Me Too moment. Me Too, it happened to me, he did it to me. And of course, not a single person did. Before this incident happened, people were far more sympathetic. People then started to be like, actually, that does sound a bit creepy. I do not like thee, Dr. Fell. The reason why? I cannot tell. But this I know, and know full well. I do not like thee, Dr. Fell. This is a poem written in 1680, and its author was a young Oxford student called Tom Brown. The story goes, he got into some mischief, whatever the 17th century equivalent of bringing a flamethrower on campus, perhaps, and he was expelled. But Tom was given a chance to come back, if he could pass a test, a 30-second translation of a Roman poem. Tom met the challenge, but cheekily he changed the words so that they were directed at, yep, you've guessed it, the Dean of Christchurch, Dr. John Fell. I do not like the Dr. Fell. How true this story is, well, I can't tell. I sometimes thought, though, that this could have been written about Martin Percy. We know people at Christchurch were unhappy with him. But why? That's less easy to say. You're listening to The Feud, a podcast brought to you by subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Andrew Billen. This is part four. Who blinks first? One of the ways of getting rid of the dean, or indeed another academic, is to have them declared physically or mentally incapable, as such that they cannot do their job. Martin is telling me about what was going on in 2021. Following a really difficult year, he'd been depressed and was signed off sick for six months. And so Christchurch had started another internal process, this time about his mental capacity. I started to receive letters which I would describe as extremely aggressive from the then censors, demanding my medical notes and full access to them, and also demanding that I be assessed by a psychiatrist that they wished to appoint who was a specialist in personality disorders. I didn't really feel that I did have a personality disorder and I was rather reluctant to submit myself to anything of this kind. Questions about Martin's mental state were actually first raised the previous year. It's spring 2020, a month into the pandemic. Martin has been reinstated as dean, 
but he's launched a claim for his legal fees and damages for the campaign he said had been waged against him. Another round of mediation between him and the college had broken down. I'm listening to a meeting, and like the rest of us, even ancient, tradition-bound Christchurch had resorted to video calls. Martin wasn't there because of a conflict of interest. It's a secret recording of a governing body meeting. Okay, I think we need to move on. We have a request to comment from Sarah Rowland Jones. Next up is Sarah Rowland Jones, Professor of Immunology at Christchurch. I think we probably won't get very far on the argument that he's conventionally mentally ill. I mean, he doesn't have classical signs of uh, depression or schizophrenia or madness, if if you you want to call it that. But I do think he has absolutely uh, classical signs of what people would probably call a a narcissistic personality disorder. And you're you're just describing, you know, your reams of of, uh, documentation describe somebody who is the centre of their own world whose sense of reality isn't necessarily the same as as, uh, the rest of us, um, who is either a pathological liar or who actually believes the things he's saying, but but there's certainly a blurring of of the boundary between truth and and, uh, untruth for him. This is a confidential meeting, but word got back to Martin that it was being claimed he had a narcissistic personality disorder. And having received no such diagnosis... He saw Sarah's comments as a smear campaign. We were in full gaslighting mode here, full gaslighting mode. And uh, the consequence of that was I found myself being stigmatised, demonised, marginalised, isolated as a serious risk. Martin complained to the Royal College of Physicians, Sarah's professional body, saying that a professor of immunology wasn't qualified to judge whether or not he had a personality disorder. They later sanctioned her for breaching their code of conduct. When I asked Professor Roland Jones whether she stood by her comments about Martin, Christchurch replied on her behalf. There was no assertion that the dean had a personality disorder. It was an observation made in confidence. At the time of this meeting, many colleagues were exhausted and frustrated by Martin Percy's behaviour. There was no attempt to gaslight Dr Percy. During 2020, Martin had also been referred to the police and church authorities for historic safeguarding allegations. Not about him, but things that had happened at Christchurch previously, but not reported. However, it was taken no further against Martin and resolved. Now let's move back to 2021. Martin's mental health is suffering. It was quite clear they were making a move to somehow try and establish that I was so mentally incapable that I shouldn't be allowed to work at all, with the added hook that this might not be a breakdown caused by them. It might be an underlying personality disorder that had never been diagnosed. Is Martin Percy a narcissist? Well, I've known a few narcissists, and I have to say I don't see that in him. Angela Tilby has known Martin since before he became Dean. He doesn't behave in a manipulative way towards people. I've never seen any hint of that. He doesn't sort of crave that adulation and, you know, worship 
that narcissistic people often seem to. I find it bizarre that people should invoke that bit of psychology against him. I'd have said he was much more on the hardworking, anxious, depressive scale, as, as many of us are. He was at the centre of an extraordinary storm, which was about him. So, of course, he was defending himself. I didn't pick up any sort of suggestions of narcissism at all. I think. Alan Rusbridger had got to know Martin while they were both heads of Oxford colleges. From the sidelines, he saw the feud getting more and more bitter. There's a sort of inner steel in, in his character, I think, which um, I don't think any of us can really imagine in, until we were tested in that way how we would stand up. I, I, I kind of admired him for it. Christchurch don't accept that any of their actions contributed to Martin's ill health and explain things rather differently. The dean had been absent for a continuous period of more than six months, which is the trigger set down in the statutes for a standard incapacity process. There were no aggressive letters. Relevant medical information was requested to comply with the Equality Act, and it was a proposal to see a psychiatrist, not a demand. It was now a full four years since Martin had first questioned the census job descriptions, and more than a year since it had been revealed an ex-censor joked in an email, did anyone know any good poisoners? Remember that? The distrust and the animosity had reached monstrous proportions. I was taken aback by it. I've never in, what, 35-plus years in academic life, of course I've seen spats. Of course I've seen vendettas, you know. I've never witnessed the visceral hatred that was expressed towards Martin. Professor Peter MacDonald is one of the few on the governing body throughout this saga to speak up for Martin, although he didn't speak to me until after Martin had left Christchurch. And it seemed to me merciless, pitiless. They wanted Martin to know how little they thought of him. This I find extraordinary. And although all the college's dons sit on the governing body... Peter says some pay little attention to the minutiae of governance. They have their own jobs to think about, students to teach. A lot of people had no notion of who Martin Percy was, but nevertheless, through some group dynamic or other, they were persuaded that whoever he was, he must be excluded. You won't be surprised to hear that Christchurch disagree. The very few members who believed that there was intrinsic animosity towards Dr. Percy were greatly outweighed by those who were alarmed at and dismayed by his behaviour. To back this up, Christchurch point to a no-confidence vote in Martin back in 2019. And the next year, two-thirds of the governing body wrote to the Charity Commission asking them to intervene. As Christchurch prepared its medical board hearing, what one newspaper would dub the Insanity Tribunal, Martin fought back. There had been many rounds of this fight, and he wasn't going to throw in the towel now. I found a top psychiatrist who was willing to represent me and said, I'll see you at the tribunal. And I knew with that person that it was highly unlikely that their medical expert 
would go anywhere near declaring me insane or a person with a personality disorder. And of course, it wasn't the answer for them because they were looking for a quick execution. And in fact, by simply standing up to them, I was effectively saying, if you want to do this, it's going to take you another couple of years. I will just sit in the deanery. I will stand firm. I will not be moved because I'm not insane and I don't have a personality disorder and I am not going to be labelled like that. Martin sounds so resolute to me here, talking about all this with hindsight. But there were signs that the pressure was affecting his judgment, that his resolution, his righteousness even, was taking him to places he really should not have been going. Martin's a writer. He writes all the time, essays on his website, about climate change, the governance of the Church of England, the class politics of the Bible that kind of thing. There's this particular article that we all found extremely problematic. That's Phoebe Hennell. You remember her. She's the student journalist. In the autumn of 2021, one of those essays Martin had written came to light. It was called The Red Triangle. At the beginning of the article, there's a, there is a photo of some blue and white striped pyjamas and a Star of David... He makes it clear that he is not comparing his own plight to the struggle of the Holocaust. But in doing so, we felt like he inadvertently was in fact comparing his own, what he likes to call a kind of witch hunt against him, to the Holocaust. I thought surely he would have got someone to proofread his article and let him know that actually that's not an acceptable thing to say. I'm just going to read the section Phoebe's referring to. My experience of the last three years has given me a tiny taste of what it may have been like to be forced to wear the red triangle that the Nazis made political prisoners wear on the streets and later in the camps. He went on, However, and perhaps oddly, my persecutors want me to wear this red triangle on the inside of my jacket. That way... I can always know I am subhuman. Do you regret writing that, or was it just an accurate expression of how you felt? Uh, the essay in question, it was an attempt to use the work of Hannah Arendt and others who wrote about the banality of evil. Mm. How was it that so many ordinary good German citizens could look the other way and just not do anything. But what my essay was about was not so much the suffering of, of the people going to the camps, it was a question about the people who looked away. What, what did they tell themselves was happening? I can see that for some people this is distressing. No, I'm not comparing the victims of abuse and false accusation to Holocaust victims and survivors. Although, I'm bound to say, I think if you're drawing parallels between the falsely accused, it doesn't take you very long to get to Holocaust victims and survivors. Where was this essay, controversial essay, published? It wasn't. It was just literally on a website. It was just, just work I was doing, work in progress. That was all. Your own website? Yeah. To be clear, the essay was available online. It had been published. Martin's website may not be read by lots of people, but it was there. 
that the idea that it was not finished, that's so irrelevant. No, that does not fly with me. The undergraduates at the college weren't happy. That's right. But they didn't ask me anything about it. And unfortunately, in a sense, in, in an age where people are all too ready to jump to judgment and to look away when things get too difficult, it becomes quite easy to, yeah, to do that. It does feel to me like Martin misjudged this. And the essay was taken down soon after. I think it was a clumsy thing to, to write from my memory of, of it. Alan also remembers the controversy it caused. It was a mistake. I mean, he had at least one breakdown during the course of this. And, um, yeah, he felt very bloodied and battled and not well, frankly. Hi, I'm David Aronovich, one of the hosts of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Every Monday to Friday, I sit down with one of the excellent journalists from the Times and the Sunday Times to go over one story in depth. Some of these are exclusive investigations. Some of them are analyses, trying to understand the goings-ons at Westminster. Sometimes it's hearing from the very top foreign correspondents from around the world. And when it comes to sport, we go beyond the pitch to get to grips with what's really going on. So subscribe to the half-hourly show that drops into your podcast feed every morning. Just search for Stories of Our Times wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So... Christchurch governing body was the irresistible force that would keep applying pressure on their dean and Martin was the immovable object who would not quit. Or was Martin the recalcitrant priest resisting attempts by the college to agree a way out? During the feud, the charity commission had asked questions about how costs were being managed, stressing they shouldn't spiral out of control. But this was not the only influential body taking an interest. Christchurch is one of 44 colleges at Oxford University. Other heads of house, though we might have privately tried to support Martin, it was not our role to get involved. Unlike other universities, Oxford doesn't have any formal authority over its colleges. But by now it was concerned. The publicity around this is terrible. To most outsiders, they don't distinguish between one college and another. It, it's just a, an Oxford college. And I think there was a sense that we were all being damaged by this. Martin decided to make an approach to the university chancellor. He's Lord Patton, a distinguished conservative ex-cabinet minister and the last governor of Hong Kong, where I now remember I actually interviewed him a long time ago. Lord Patton 
is a very big wig. I went to see the Chancellor and the Vice-Chancellor towards the end of December 2021 and said, I think this is now so seriously corrupt and broken, you're going to have a major problem in terms of bad publicity, bad PR, which I think you know could take a generation to remove. It is so incomprehensibly dark and wicked. As this scandal continued, the headlines in newspapers and the chat around the university were disturbing some alumni. Support for the college seemed to be dwindling. My understanding is that Christchurch would normally receive about £5 million a year in things like new gifts, pledges and bequests. But during this time, they were receiving only about £1 million. So that's £4 million a year less than they might have expected. Christchurch say they don't recognise that figure. Back to the meeting between Martin and the Chancellor. They had taken the view that this was, as it were, an argument in the kitchen between you know one individual and a handful of others. But I think for themselves, they had now begun to realise that the institution itself and its expenditure of charitable money was so far gone. And of course, they had been receiving letters from alumni and members of the public. So what, what we said at the end of December was, look, it's quite clear I can't stay. I'm not really uh, particularly interested in a very large payout. Hang on, did you hear that? Martin is saying he can't stay after all that stuff about not being willing to go. The fact is that Martin by this point is tired and he was feeling the feud was using up his life. What I do need is uh, something that compensates me for all of this injury and I also need my legal fees back. And I think the Charity Commission need to get fully involved in this. I did ask the Chancellor and the Vice-Chancellor for an interview, but they declined. As last Christmas approached, they'd requested a meeting with Christchurch's governing body. Lord Patton wrote in a letter that the whole saga was doing damage to the reputation of the collegiate university. The censors were not happy. In emails they accidentally sent to the entire governing body, one claim that the undergraduates regarded Patton as a dinosaur. And they also misspelt dinosaur. Another colleague added, it's none of their business. But the meeting did go ahead. And the atmosphere was several degrees below frosty. Peter was at the meeting. Let me put this bluntly. I think the University of Oxford is a much more important thing than Christchurch. When the University of Oxford says it is time to sort this out, you go with that. Significant progress was then made. Just a few weeks later, after lunch on Friday the 4th of February this year, Martin and Christchurch settled. Peter was also at that meeting. After four years, it was agreed in an hour. It's quite true that it was one hour. Yes, time limited. There wasn't a great deal of discussion. Was there any dissent? Were people saying this is... There was a little... Well, I, I suppose at the moment I can't really divulge what was said and by whom, but I think there were reasonable elements of doubt that were outweighed by elements of recommendation. 
did raise for me the question of, if you can do this in one hour now, couldn't this all have been done in one hour a lot further ago? And I, I, I still think it's remarkable how quickly things can get done when they have to be done. I think there was enough pressure on the censors by this time to say that actually if, if you don't settle, you're committing yourself to years of further legal struggle. Somebody has to blink first. And, uh, uh, you know, thankfully, that was Christchurch. They blinked. Whether the college had blinked or Martin had blinked by being prepared to go perhaps depends on your point of view. I asked the college. By this point, Christchurch had been attempting to solve the disputes for over three years, but Dr Percy had disrupted each attempt. The censors were on top of the serious issues, with a level of detail not fully appreciated by the Chancellor and Vice-Chancellor. And Christchurch insists that they did consider the reputation of the university. Also, they say that what had changed to allow the settlement relates back to the last episode. Remember I told you about Alain June, the woman who alleges Martin stroked her hair? Well, she had settled with the college, as had Martin. Well, that happened this year, and... Christchurch was not able to settle without being able to resolve that claim in parallel. As part of the overall settlement, the college dropped the pending tribunals and Martin dropped his employment claims. I understand Martin got around £1.25 million. It was effectively all my legal fees back and a substantial sum by way of compensation for I would uh, guess injury cause, but of course Christchurch admitting no liability, no responsibility and no apology. One of the many things that's been bothering me throughout this investigation is this. There are about 65 members of the Christchurch governing body, eminent, intelligent people. We've contacted many of them but only Peter MacDonald was willing to speak publicly. Is there a world in which he had got it all wrong? Look, you know, I could be the idiot here, nor have I ever denied that. I can only be honest about what I've seen, witnessed and felt. Um, am I a fool? Maybe. If I am, I need to be told why. Why did you stay on the governing body? Why not just walk out? There's a very clear answer to that, and which again takes us into the morass of the whole problem here, which is that I am obliged to be a member of the governing body in order to hold my position. So if you walked out of the governing body, you'd be saying goodbye to your job? I would. I would. Yes. And so, one Tuesday in April this year, the time had finally come for Martin and his wife Emma to leave. It felt pretty strange. We we were ready to go by then. We'd had some friends round to help us just do a bit of packing up and last-minute things. We, we had been running against the clock, actually, because we hadn't quite realised how much there was to do. It was quite a nice day. Uh, it was warm, wasn't overcast, sort of mild, sunny. I was there. I watched Martin walk from Christchurch Deanery for the very last time. 
As he strode across Tom Quad, holding Emma's hand, their dog Lyra led the way out. And we could just enjoy the space as we walked out. And at the Porter's Lodge, Martin embraced a couple of members of staff. Warm hugs and affection from the people who were there. We, we had really formed strong friendships with so many of the staff throughout the institution and continue to see them. And then Martin Percy left Alice's Wonderland and the Harry Potter universe back into the world. We finally stepped out under Tom Tower and into St Aldate's the street outside. It was a quiet end to a bitter feud. Or was it? I'm frankly concerned that you may have been involved in pursuing her behind a sort of cloak of anonymity. Right. There's talk of intimidation, this time from Martin. And how much money has actually been wasted on this whole unhappy saga? That's all next time on the final episode of The Feud. You've been listening to part four of The Feud. It's reported and presented by me, Andrew Billen. It's brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. The series is produced by Will Rowe and Brenna Daldorf. Production assistance and fact-checking is by Constance Kapfner. The executive producer is Lynn Jones. And the original music and the sound design is by Tom Birchall. <laughs>